Well, I'm here to report that Tom Sexton received his Triple E shirt in the mail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's laundry day, pal. It's, this is worse than this is the band wearing the band shirt to the band show. I did it one time in town and just got roasted mercilessly. Really? Yeah. People were like, "What? why are you wearing a Triple E shirt? I was like, I think it's a cool shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I like my own shirt. <laughs> And and I've not worn it since, just because I got roasted so bad. I have to slip out of town under the cover of darkness, and make sure I don't get seen. Don't get, don't let anybody see wearing yeah. that. <clears throat> um, I found uh, laying at the bottom of my driveway, at the bottom of the hill. I found some state secrets. Really? Yeah. Did the black vans drop their? Drop their notes on you. <laughs> Actually, it's funny. Yeah, so like on the front, <laughs> on the front, there's a a sticker. It's like got all these names crossed out. One of them says "Find Tyrone," but it's crossed out. But it's got like phone numbers written on it, and then it's got it says Coddle, and there's an arrow pointing to Janet, pointing to M. Coddle, pointing to Lewis Lois Baker. I was like, what the fuck is this? And so I opened it and I started reading on the inside. And what it is, it is, uh, yeah, it's like... It's a dossier on the uh, <laughs> MCHC cartel. Yeah, you might as well consider me Julian Assange. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, lit- it's literally someone's note on the water treatment. So it's like April 5th. Pulled CO2 reading and got county roads, gave to Dwight and Janet. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Zero consumption. I can return that to the water plant. I used to have to do that. Yeah. You go around, you test the chlorine and the everything in the water and make a note of it. No, man, these are state secrets. Now we have written documentation of all the things they've done to the water. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I thought that was absurd. <laughs> Find Tyrone. <laughs> scratched out. It read a different way. It seems like somebody, <laughs> there's a hit list. That... We found him. Yeah. <clears throat> um. Well, welcome. What's going on? Shit, man. Just uh, stopped over at uh, Paco's for a little lunch before I came here and asked for the the hot sauce from the kitchen, you know, the, yeah. the real stuff. Light me up, Paco. Poor choice. Really? Struggling through. <laughs> Struggling through. In your Trillbilly shirt, got acid reflux. I'm in bad shape, man. <laughs> I tell you, I swear I am. Not good. Oh, man. What about you? I'm okay. Um, on the Patreon episode from Sunday, I told a story about how I thought a my cats got into the edibles. Yeah. Wasn't the cats. I owe my cats an apology. He was a fucking raccoon. A raccoon's been getting in here. I was just reading on the catch the other night, and it just poked its head in through the cat door. <laughs> mm. Oh, he's here. <laughs> that cat. So he must have partied pretty hard and then come back for more. I mean, he's... Like, whatever that was. <laughs> so, yeah, I owe my cat. What if you came in here and just saw a raccoon just, like, on a trip? That it was just, like... <laughs> he was just pontificating about, you know... You know, the universe and whatnot. He's scribbling, find Tyrone. Um, <laughs> yeah. In a yeah, book. Yeah, man, we got to find Tyrone. A-cab. 
<laughs> um, you know, I was thinking the other day, so, you know, Rumsfeld died recently. Yeah, I heard that. <laughs> um, like a week or two ago. Could you imagine how much better it would have been if Trump had been president? During when Rumsfeld died, what would what what would that have looked like? I mean, he would have absolutely <laughs> he would have absolutely like roasted him, yeah. But like in that sort of well, in that backhanded way, you yeah. Know, it's a bad idea. I told him it was a bad idea to go into Iraq. I told him it was a bad idea to slim down the military. But Donnie, he made some mistakes when he worked here. <laughs> he did. It's true. <laughs> was he good? Sure. I mean, I think maybe he was. <laughs> It just could have been better, I guess is all I'm saying. I told him, don't go to Afghanistan. It's the graveyard of empires. <laughs> Did he listen? No. But, you know, you see that article today that said that um, Trump's one regret was not lowering the flag after after January 6th, capital rights. <laughs> no. It's like, I should have lowered the flag. <laughs> <laughs> that was his big regret. For who? I mean, I guess democracy? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's like, like the cop who had a heart attack and died or something? Of the woman that got shot and killed yeah. there. What? Did, I, did a, a cop die, right? I can't remember. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> then there was the one guy that had, that showed his bravery. That's so fucking funny. My, something I should have done. Lowered the flag after the January 6th capital rights, which I did not inside. <laughs> yeah, it's like Carter's big regret, regret was not sending in a, a third helicopter or whatever. Trump's regret, yeah, not lowering the flag. <laughs> the day after. <laughs> Gotta let all the fats come out. It's a different time, January 2021. It really does seem like a different age. It does. You know. I was thinking the other day... Um, do you remember when ASAP Rocky like went to Sweden and like got in a jail. fight with someone and went to jail yeah. and like Trump tweeted in support of it? Like yeah. all of those things make no sense. ASAP Rocky in Sweden, like <laughs> Trump supporting him. Yeah, very bizarre time. No, it feels like a different era. Yeah, that is. Oh God, uh, got yeah. some kind of weed here. Um, well, uh, so, yeah, like, welcome to the show, uh, I had something planned for today. Um, I wanted to talk about the article I wrote for The Baffler, uh, selfishly. Um. That's good, I think it's a good discussion that could be had there. Yeah, I think it's, um, I wanted to do it as an, an entire episode because there's a lot to cover there. I guess it's, um probably one of our more serious topics <laughs> not a whole lot of so, comedy so if you're here for the yuck yucks <laughs> check out now <laughs> um yeah i so have received minimal pushback from it but i guess if you want to shield yourself from pushback write a 7000 word article about something really depressing it's the only way to do it cuz yeah because to if anyone's going to criticize you, they have to first get through that major obstacle. So, and not many people do. That's caught what it is. Fifteen hundred words where we top out. 
<laughs> right, right, right. That's where I give it the TLDR. Right. I'm sure many people did. Well, this is for those people uh, who would rather listen to something in audio form. It's <laughs> the abridged. Than read an entire yeah. 7,000 word article about it. Um, so, I've wanted to do this episode ever since I started looking into this. But then my more astute friends were like, don't piss it away on a podcast episode, man. Get it out there in writing first. Get it out like on the record. Yeah. <laughs> don't piss it away just where someone's going to then pick it up and write their own thing about it. Um, is this where we piss it away? This is where we piss it away. Okay. <laughs> I hope you're ready. Um, so I read something for The Baffler. Um it's called United in Rage. You can find it at the Baffler's website. But we also talked on the Patreon about how you can purchase the edition of the Baffler that it's in. Um, which you should do because it makes me look like I've got some clout. Some clout. Yeah, if we can move some copies, <laughs> yeah, they'll let us keep doing this kind of thing. Right. Um, so the whole purpose of this is to paint kind of an alternative narrative of the opioid epidemic. Yeah. I mean, it's nothing like mind-blowing or anything. It's not like some, this is something you've never heard before. A lot of people are claiming you went (laughs) pro-Sackler. A lot of of people went (laughs) interrogating your ties to Arthur Sackler's granddaughter, Prudence. (laughs) Someone said that I, I had written it like I was looking for drug war tropes or something that weren't there. I don't know what the fuck a drug war trope is. What is a drug war trope? <laughs> In my opinion, a drug war trope is just the perpetuation of the us versus the Sacklers thing. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, now that you mention it, this same person tweeted something completely nonsensical. They were like, finally read the piece. Um, it's okay, but if anything... Uh, this seems like a big honeypot operation from Roger Sackler, Robert Sackler, or whatever. It's just like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like you're on the take from Robert Sackler? I guess. Or that, like, Robert Sackler is the one who decided to do what? Robert Sackler, famously, famously funder of, famous funder of the Baffler. Yeah. <laughs> no, what it was is, um, Having now read the piece, I guess my main feeling is that what really happened here was more like a big pharma-managed honeypot operation for the post-industrial disposable underclass of Appalachia. And that story would probably more accurately start with Richard Sackler. Well, no, I don't think it would, because Richard Sackler's not a police chief. No, no. He's not, he has no actual say over what police do. He's not a governor, a political figure. He's a capitalist. He created the conditions for... These people, these stories... Okay, so a lot of people would consider Appalachia ground zero for the opioid crisis. And I don't know, you know, I think, you know, it probably started a lot of different places, but probably similar type places. I do know that (laughs) I had a friend that that went to UK in like the late 90s that I used to lifeguard at the city pool with. And she went down there and she was like, well, I would tell people about like people would like snort pills in like 99 in Lexington. People would be like, what? (laughs) Like that was a foreign sort of concept. So like, I feel like a lot of these national journalists that are trying to 
maybe gatekeep this story or whatever. It's like they have to start from a context that they understand because right. everybody else everybody else's is wrong. Right? Right. So they start with Richard Sackler. <laughs> They, their context, they've never done these drugs. They've never done these they drugs. They don't live here. No. I've done these drugs. <laughs> I've put more hydrocodone up my nose than... There ain't much I haven't put up my nose, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> but... Right. I put that behind me, but... Yeah, like, I ain't trying... Listen, I ain't trying to hear you You talk about, uh, oh, this is a, a honey pot and blah, 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 unless you've, like... You know, unless you have had the experience of going to the dentist and then having family members call and ask you what they gave you. Right. You know? Right, right. <laughs> well, I, the thing is, is that all these people are, they're all operating on the same sort of accounts. And so that's why I say mine is kind of a, a, a different one. And I think that one of the main themes here is just perspective. You're just looking at it from a different perspective. I don't. I'm not absolving the Sacklers. I'm not absolving Big Pharma in any way. I think those people should have the worst things done to them. <laughs> not just for uh, flooding rural communities with opioids, but for... Their crimes are plenty. Right, exactly. <laughs> no. $80 to get an EpiPen, stuff like that. Yeah, you know, yeah, Their yeah. crimes are plenty. Um, but, so yeah, so I'm not trying to absolve any of them. But I think there is a reason why these narratives are these accounts are so popular, and it's for the same reason that uh, I don't know liberals they latch on to I like accounts of capitalism gone wrong. Yeah, and I think that this is one example of it. It's like, and there's several different um, sort of examples in this genre. Like Beth Macy's Dope Sick is a big. Uh, you know, it's probably the least bad book about the opioid right. crisis right now, but they're about to turn it into a Hulu series, like a dramatized Hulu series. Man, there is like <laughs> a. Uh, I'm, listen, I'm not against like, um, you know, dramatizations of you know real world events or anything. Obviously, you know what I mean. But like, it does feel like there is like a a vogue for like uh, for like sort of pill chic. Yeah. Kind of, um, you know, hard-boiled accounts of, like, the opioid crap. Like, we've got enough distance from it, sort of, now that we can... It's not gauche to sell a TV series or, you know... Well, someone pointed this out to me. So, HBO just did a series about this. I think Alex... What's that guy's name? Alex... uh, Not him. Fuck. I can't remember his last name, but he, you know, he was... He did a big documentary about Jack Abramoff in the mid 2000s yeah, what is Alex um Gibney Alex Gibney yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, he I think he may have done something on this or he may have produced that HBO documentary but in that documentary they actually had a montage of people overdosing to what John Denver's Country Roads Roads yeah just insanity <laughs> like look I just fucking uh, crazy I mean but that's one example I and mean, I read an interview with the the directors of that film who were like, we're, we're trying, and this is Beth Macy's approach too. We're trying to, you know, humanize the victims of the crisis. We're trying to tell the story from their point of view. And it's like, no, you're not. Cause you're still telling it with you as the sort of mediator, the mediator of those stories. And here, and here's the big thing on all these accounts. Another one is Barry Myers painkiller. 
who used to write for the New York Times, you know, and I talked about him in the piece. And then Eric Iyer, Death at, in Mudlick or something like that. Death in Mudlick, yeah. Yeah. And he used to work for the Charleston Gazette, whatever it used to be called. Um, but here's the problem with all of these. And here's why my account, I think, is different. None of these are dialectical. Yeah. We are taking a dialectical approach to predation, uh, addiction, yeah. and criminalization. Yeah. Uh, and so what I mean by that... Is None that, of these, I, I, I'm not familiar with it. I, I remember when the the uh, piece with the Country Roads montage was, when, I'm, you know, like I saw clips of that when people were sharing that around or whatever. But, like, none of these really take to task local law enforcement, the courts. Yeah. Or none of that. No. How, I, I, I don't understand. I'll never forget the day we took my best friend from high school to that rehab place over in, uh, Ash camp, like you're going toward uh, West Care. West Care, yeah, 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 yeah. It's actually, it's got Hal Rogers' name on in the front. Uh, it's, well, we'll get to that anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I can remember there was this guy there that they called Mister Six Hundred Six, is what he called himself. Mm-hmm. I forget what his real name was, but he was like kind of like the, you know, sort of the guy on the inside that had been, you know, had rehabilitated, turned, got his life turned back around. Now he was kind of like. Um, yeah, I think he had a job there or something like that. He had some kind of role there or whatever to like kind of counsel other people on his experience, whatever. And uh, I remember when we took my friend there, and I was sitting out on the porch. It was me, Tyrone, uh, and uh, his my friend's mom. And he was like, "You don't understand." He's like, "The judges are in on this." The like he like he knew like this is like two thousand. Nine, right. you know what I mean. And he was like, "Oh, it's the tentacles of this opioid thing go yeah. far out there." And it was funny because I had never really thought about anything like that. Because even I guess in two thousand nine terms, I was of the opinion, "Oh, Sacklers flooded West Virginia towns with millions of pills." That's the story. You know what I mean? Right. Maybe even worse than that. Maybe even like, um. I, you know, I probably believed all the tropes about the, the rise in crime and everything like that because you would hear one. There was a story about this guy that had like had like beat his grandmother half to death with a meat tenderizer to get money to buy pills allegedly, and nobody really knows the truth of why all that went down. Right? You know what I mean? Right. And then ended up she didn't die, but she had to like smart him she goes and lays in the bed and she says well if you're going to kill me let me die in my own bed and she went in there and then she ended up having to shoot her own grandson because he was going to like finish her off or something like that and that was like that like everybody heard this tale and that was like oh that's like shocking and horrifying and all this kind of stuff and like i can remember police and stuff using that as like oh well you don't think and it may very well have been like a drug type crime but that was like oh you don't think what about such and such almost killing beating his poor grandmother to death for dope money and all that kind right, of stuff. Right. You know, so it's like the one outlier that they use to sort of Yeah, a lot of these well, yeah, and so we'll get to that, but a lot of these local crime statistics and claims would make sensationalistic claims like that. Yeah. That oh, these this crime is for drug money, it was while people were on drugs. And a lot of these claims were reprinted by all the authors that I just listed. 
just uncritically. And they the, were the best prize-winning local journalists, too. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you read Beth Macy's book. She's got statistics in there. It's, it's actually fascinating the way that she frames it at the beginning of one chapter. It's like people still slept in their beds safely and soundly before Oxycontin. They hadn't started locking their doors and their shed doors every night before the crime wave appeared. And she, like, cites... Um, a police chief talking about this. She she cites an ATF agent assigned to West Virginia talking about this, and she just is completely uncritical. Just takes them for their word. Just like okay, yeah, all right. But so what it is? People been robbing sheds for a long time before. Yeah, <laughs> hydrocodone was around. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. Um. But yeah. So what it is, and what I mean by like taking a dialectical approach to this is that these narratives all have a, uh, a sort of schematic of characters and a formula. And so on one side, it's Big Pharma, Purdue and the Sacklers, mm. and it's the pill mill doctors, you know, pain specialists, and the, and the Big Pharma sales reps and everybody else. Yeah. On the other side, it is uh, community activists and scientists and faith leaders um, and law enforcement. Mm. One of the books, literally, Beth or Barry Myers' book on the back says, like, you know, talks about the law enforcement officials who valiantly tried to sound the alarm of OxyContin. Um, so, like, <laughs> how did they do that exactly? Yeah. By, by uh, <laughs> rounding up uh, users and dealers and putting them in a cage and taking them to high schools and right, like right. showing them off. <laughs> well, so this might sound obvious. I don't know. Maybe it's not. I, I don't know. I can't tell. But every now and then I see online people be like, um, well, they, you know, it's this kind of woke take where they're like, well, they criminalized crack in the 80s. But once white people started using pills, you know, they 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 wanted to, they wanted to help, them, which is bullshit. Complete bullshit. They criminalized <laughs> yeah. these drugs um, militantly. I yeah. mean, like, we'll get into it. Right. But but so what I'm talking about is. That narrative is, is, is it's a very simplified one. Um, it is a, a classic narrative in American journalism. Um, we talked about that on our episode, was it The Insider with Russell Crowe and Al Pacino? Yeah. Like, it's a very seductive one for American journalists because it uh, assumes that there's a bad corporate America and they're doing bad things, but all it takes is some brave Atticus Finch types yeah. to stand up and speak truth to power. And everything will be fine again. Right. It's like so. I mean, th- these these narratives kind of basically follow that format. Yeah. Another thing that these narratives rely on is this image of this place as like a deindustrialized place, and that's why pills took hold here. And, and you know, in other parts of the Rust Belt, Central Appalachia. So that, I'm sure. I'm I've, again. I've not watched any of these works that are you know that you can watch or read any of this stuff. To be fair, but. I'm sure that not a few of them open up with montages of rusted <laughs> out tractors. Coal mining equipment. Coal mining equipment. <laughs> the coal chutes, you know what I mean? And probably with like a Waylon Jennings song playing in the background or something. I literally, I remember, you were with me, I think, one time. Me and you got tasked with like being a, like a handler. What's the, I don't know what the word would be. A stringer for like a Washington Post journalist. Who made us drive them around Floyd County trying to get a picture of like rusted out coal mining oh equipment? Oh my god! <laughs> his name was Jody. So I don't remember. Yeah, his last name. Yeah. 
<laughs> but yeah, like that's the kind of image that they're looking for. And that is, in their opinion, in their analysis, that is why opioids took off in places like this. Yeah. My thesis is that it's a little more complicated. My thesis is that at the same time that coal was declining or other industries, whether it's farming or other extractive industries or manufacturing, other industries were on the rise. And there's actually a new book about this by Gabe Wynott um, about the healthcare industry, the rise of the healthcare Nobody industry. Nobody knows I said Gabe's last name. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, there was a rise of other industries, especially in places like this. Like, look at our downtown now as opposed to 10 years ago. Yeah. Every fucking storefront is a healthcare facility now. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And there's in the rise of the service industries. Yeah. And that this created a change in the gender economy. Yeah. That this might have contributed, I'm not saying that more people were doing drugs as a result i'm saying that this created the atmosphere for the drug war hell yeah baby we got to pulmonary <laughs> clinic downtown <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes that in addition to and this is the one of the other things that these accounts don't take into account all of this occurred in the political atmosphere of the war on terror yeah. Like, this was a very crucial component to what happened. Um, early 2000s, like, for example, OxyContin was created in 1996. Yeah. So, actually, let's just, let's just start there. OxyContin was created in 1996. Yeah. Very powerful analgesic. Um, what, it has, what it had on it was a time-release delay, or a time-delay release, or whatever they're called, yeah. strip on it, which means... You take it, and it'll last for, like, eight hours, yeah. which was you helpful for, like, cancer patients. Right. You know, prior to that, you just take morphine or hydrocodone or Percocet or whatever, lasts a couple hours. Oxycontin was extremely powerful and could last a long time. Yeah. Um, but it was introduced in 96, and you don't get the big drug war moral panic about it until 2001. So why? Yeah. That's my big qu that's my big question. Why does it take 6 years? Yeah. I think several things had to happen for that to occur. So, yeah, I I think pre-911, I definitely been in high school, I mean, I knew like the drug thing was bubbling. But it wasn't the panic it was yeah, until like I guess it wasn't codified as like a crisis or a uh, a war or whatever you want to call it till after nine eleven. It probably took sort of the heightened rhetoric of that uh -huh. alarmist nature of like ISIS and Bin Laden and da 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 to to sort of like have to take you know um, sort of took its cues. I guess is what I'm trying to say from from like all the sound and the alarm about the Iraq War and everything. Yeah, and if you think that I'm being hyperbolic about that, this is a theme that I ran into time and time again with researching this. Every time I thought I was being unreasonable, hyperbolic, or sensationalist, I would find more and more evidence that, that showed that I actually wasn't being hyperbolic enough. Everything I thought was that I was saying was ridiculous would prove to be even more ridiculous than you yeah the truth that. yeah the truth was always more insane than i thought it would be uh. so for example you can find multiple op-eds editorial statements from attorneys prosecutors police chiefs politicians that liken 
drug users to terrorists. They literally talk about it. They say, um, yeah, foreign terrorists are a big threat, but the biggest threat to our communities right now, I'm, re- I'm quoting almost directly an op-ed in the Appalachian News Express in Pikeville, it said the biggest threat is homegrown criminals who use drugs. <laughs> so yeah, like, the othering uh, is kind of similar. Yes, too. You yeah, know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. the, I know there was a phrase that I I heard when I would dispatch at the fire department. You know, you'd have like all the cops in the county would come in and out of that office from time to time, and and one phrase they used for like drug dealers was, or not drug dealers, but drug users was uh, a, sort of a. Um, I'm trying to think of how how I could say this. It's kind of like a um, a uh, well, sort of a colloquial spin on the word hybrid. Yeah, they call them hybrids. Right. You know what I mean? <clears throat> As something like to suggest something less than human. I found a actually, dude. This is this is actually incredible. Um, I found a op-ed in the Hazard Herald. Um that is a perfect example of what we're talking about here. Um, So let me pull this up right here real quick. Um, This is in the Hazard Herald, uh, written by a guy named Jared Deaton. Um, Zombies on Maine. So yeah, this is uh, Jared Deaton is probably uh, has something to do with uh, the Soar Initiative now or something like that. <laughs> be my guess. Wouldn't surprise exactly. me if I found out he's like the city manager of like Pikeville or some shit, or Chamber of Commerce, yeah, yeah. or some because all of these things are woven into each other. Yeah, 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 yeah. The fate of the region is intricately tied to the drug war. Yeah, yeah. and again, that is this big th- dynamic that you see reemerge time and time again of economic development and if we want to economically develop this place then we have to you know cleanse this place yeah that the the words like that were used didn't didn't it kind of (laughs) hurt or or i guess i guess what i'm trying to say is i guess it bolstered the narrative about 2010 when the walking dead comes on a show because i heard that all the time yeah boys it's like the walking dead out here well it's interesting like reading this Writing this, researching it, it's like the things that we've talked about on this show a lot over the years, the nonprofit industry, um, the extraction industries, um, the rise of a, uh, you know, the class of individual, the professional class here that like wants to see a better future whatever the fuck they call it like make like, no mistake about it when you're in this context when you're saying revitalization you're talking about getting rid of people that have yeah teeth missing that exactly have, like you know what they would call meth mouth or like this the sort of like uh body horror attached right. to drug use that kind of stuff that is the thing about this so the opioid crisis or whatever is not siloed off into some other realm it is intricately tied into all of those efforts yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and social developments. Um, zombies on Main. Uh, with the new courthouse and Wal- Walmart Supercenter in Hazard, it would appear that the city is growing and heading in the right direction. While things are looking good for Hazard, a problem still exists, which will continue to hold the city back. The zombies. Now, I'm not talking about the undead who crave human flesh, but I am referring to the semi-dead who crave pills and alcohol and are lurching around Main Street by 8 a.m., 
Uh, there is no way for Hazard to reach the status that its leaders would like to see until this issue is taken care of. While the sweeps made by the Hazard Police Department usually collect a fair number of these useless fiends, useless fiends dude it is just it's incredible like again this was common this, this is probably this is probably like a more sort of liberal person probably yeah, yeah honestly um but yeah anyways uh it just goes on and it's just slanders them more like that i mean it's just yeah it's just like stuff like that um but so so yes yeah, so like we have to look at the um we have to look at the political economic um situation in the late 90s when oxycontin and the quote-unquote opioid epidemic that was another thing that that the person that critic we read from earlier the honeypot thing the drug war trope thing said that i put opioid epidemics in quotations well yeah because it was largely constructed so we have to look at the situation that it was constructed in so yeah let's rewind the clock to the late 90s (laughs) you were here tom (laughs) what was it like god (laughs) <laughs> the number one song on the radio was semi Charm Kind of Life by Third Eye Blind. A song about meth, actually. <laughs> really? <laughs> um, it is. Um yeah, no, so I mean you've got you've got uh you've got like I said earlier, the decline of one industry, the coal industry. Yeah. Um, but you've got the rise of healthcare and service industries. That creates a different sort of tax structure. Uh, on local municipalities and, and counties, yeah. but you've also got at the same time the introduction of welfare reform, and the Clinton era is 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 critical here. The late Clinton era and, and the move from uh, entitlements to block grants is a big thing that have well, just in terms of like how people fed their families and how municipalities got money and everything had some pretty severe consequences. Absolutely. It saddled counties with all kinds of different obligations. You've also got the crime bill at this time. I mean, um, this is a pivotal moment, you know. And then you've got someone who I think we're going to detour through, we're going to need to detour through, and who will complete the whole sort of, um, you know, holistic vision of this thing, Hal Rogers. Yeah. and so, yeah, you've got, at the same time, uh, Hal Rogers turning this place into a virtual fucking prison camp, you know, right. building multiple prisons. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so let's talk about Rogers. I want to talk about Rogers a little bit. Um, Did it, I didn't even really think about that, but it's almost like, when was the first of, like, Rogers' sort of uh, USPs built here? Um it would have been Clay County in 1989 is when so they So late 80s, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think it was completed in 91. Yeah, and it's kind of one of those things where it's like, this is like the perfect storm for him because now they have something they can criminalize to... I'm not saying like all these prisons are filled up by local like drug criminals. It's, that's I don't think that's the case, but it's like he needs sort of uh, his tough-on-crime... You know what I mean? Just to sort of fit in, like, you know, with this prison expansion and all this kind of stuff. He's putting the narrative out there that this is, like, he's letting us know where he stands on crime and everything. Right. It's linked in also to the decline of coal and everything. Our friend Sylvia wrote her undergrad thesis about this, about how the point of these prisons was to reclaim land that was It was surplus land. Right. Um, And there were surplus people 
on which to put, you know, surplus. Yeah. yeah right. And so, um, so we've talked about Rogers before in the show, but he's our congressman. Um, and he's an extremely powerful guy, but he came into office in 1980 on the Reagan revolution. Yeah. Um, and throughout the eighties in the most, this is one of the most fascinating things about Rogers. Um, he does have the appearance of a sort of like tough on crime law and order type guy, but he's also from day one been very intimate with the nonprofit industries here, uh, with the healthcare industries, um, always sort of looking forward to what's happening next, but not shy to use his congressional district as like a sort of laboratory or testing grounds for all kinds of different things. Rogers is, it was, a liberal darling for a long time, like particularly in, in like the nonprofit sphere, because I can remember him being so praised in like the early and mid nineties. We used to do this thing with the, with this sort of, it wasn't really an ad hoc group. It was, you know, it was like kind of like an offshoot of KFTC or something like that. We used to do this thing called river sweep. And, uh, yes, we will get, yeah. But like he, like he, he supported like trash pickup programs and all that kind of stuff. And that carried him some favor with these type of liberals that you interview more for this piece that like yeah. have some like very harsh words to say about addicts, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, the most important thing to remember about Rogers, and we talked about this on the episode with Jesse Wilkerson about Eula Hall, but Rogers was at the right place at the right time. He was able to, oversee effectively oversee the dismantling of the war on poverty programs but at the same time position himself as the person the middleman the person you go to to see if you would like to see your specific program or whatever saved yeah yeah because he you know he, he was uh he had an in um and that made him a very powerful person and in fact well, this is really crazy in like 1981 or 82, he uh, did these workshops to explore what deregulation and austerity would look like right after Reagan got in. And what do you know? There's a massive picture of him and Poppy, Poppy Bush, <clears throat> like shaking hands and sitting down while Hal presents the report from that. So Eastern Kentucky was kind of the laboratory for, like, how are we going to pull well, deregulation and austerity off? Right, yeah. So, like, if you're out there and you're wondering, like, why this place continues to stay poor or whatever the case may be, that's a very complicated question. But, like, it could all be summed up as we've been lab rats for <laughs> since the Reagan era. And in a lot of ways, they're still stuck in the Reagan era. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, Rogers was able to position himself as the sort of middle person between those two, uh, you know, forces. The sort of war, the the economy here that had been built with coal and war on poverty, social welfare programs, and then the dismantling of that. Something also I want to just as an aside here that's interesting. This is also around the era that um, Harry Cobble, who the library is named after, has is having his liaison with William Stokely, the famous eugenicist, who. Coddles posing the question, are these people, this is pre-opioid right. crisis or whatever, yeah. are these people the dregs of England, he called us, right. and, and not comes with Cumberlands, are these people irredeemable, are they just, do they love their poverty, whatever, whatever. And this is like probably 88, couple years before Coddle died. Right. So it's not like that far in the past, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's happening 
at the same time that there is this <clears throat> push for economic development here, which was new. Yeah. That was new from the 60s. That was that did exist. There was talk of tourism and developing this place, you know, through capitalism, but the sort of big idea in the 60s and early 70s was transforming this place through social welfare programs, yeah. through government. And so then once that dream dies or whatever, then in the 80s and 90s it becomes well we will do it through markets. Yeah. And so then, yeah, that's why you get people talking about eugenics. That's why you get Hal Rogers using this place as a surplus dumping grounds or whatever, transforming it through prisons. and uh, But at the same time, tourism and just pork projects in general, mm. chamber of commerce type stuff, bringing in government contracts, <clears throat> all that. Um, so, so, yeah, the big thing of Rogers in the 90s is uh, develop, you know, economic development and everything. Um, so, uh, basically the way to think about it though, is that in the nineties, when Clinton starts, uh, you know, when Clinton continues the trends of mass incarceration and they write the crime bill and everything, Rogers looks at this situation and he looks at his own, uh, you know, congressional district, his own jurisdiction and says, what if we transferred the logic of the inner city drug war and the war on poverty to the rural, you know, haulers of Eastern Kentucky. Yeah. <clears throat> and that's what he starts to do. And you can actually see that there's headlines that say, you know, Rogers cuts legal aid, boosts police. Yeah. And he starts pouring money into local law enforcement initiatives. In addition to the prisons he's building, he's yeah. also, you know, beefing up law enforcement agencies. Right. Um, one thing he did in 99 or 2000 was create this thing called the Rural Law Enforcement Technology Center in Hazard. We talked about this. Yeah. Where, they, you know, where you go swim in our episode about that yeah. lap swimming at the Hazard Pavilion. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's where they do their police training, and they've got all kinds of fancy technology. I found this thing of like a symposium they had there where they featured all this technology, and it's just like, why the fuck do... A, police departments in cities with like 2,000 people need like bomb diffusing technologies they, <laughs> in, like yeah like, like infrared fucking yes, like exactly. crazy ass shit yeah. exactly I mean he's just pouring mil millions and millions I think that by 2003 that law enforcement technology center got like 23 million dollars yeah um he's also um you know I forgot to mention that at the same time he's head of the House Appropriations Committee that, you know, all throughout the actually he didn't become head of the committee itself until like the late 2000s but he was always head of an important subcommittee on the House Appropriations right. Committee. He was, a, they call him the College of Cardinals. There's like 12 of them who are like the heads of the subcommittees on the Appropriations Committee. It's like, it sounds very Masonic and it's like Yeah, very like weird. Fucking <laughs> Fucking kids, Bohemian girls. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so he's like a very powerful guy. He controls where and how the empire spends its money. Right. Yeah. And that includes the drug war in yeah. the 90s. Um, and so, uh, like I said, the, the, the role. Law Enforcement Technology Center. But another thing he does is uh, something he gets entire the entirety of Eastern Kentucky's 5th Congressional District turned into the HITA de designation. You ever heard of that? Mm -hmm. It's a high-intensity drug trafficking area. It was the second rural area in the nation that did get it. Um, and there's actually these 
amazing photos I have to show you of him like standing in pot fields with like Kentucky National Guardsmen yeah. who, you know, have like parachuted down into fucking like pot fields. And, to like, confiscate all... like three plants <laughs> that somebody had like in a field behind their house somewhere. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Just, just shit like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, his big sort of, you know, thing towards the late 90s, you already mentioned it, was Kentucky Pride. Yeah. Personal responsibility in a desirable environment. That's right. what it's called. It's, what it is is it is cleaning up tre- streams. Yeah. Cleaning up trash. Yeah. They, they gave, um, of course, it later on it became mediated by the nonprofits and so forth, but like they, they used to just give you money to go around picking up trash out of like creeks and stuff. You know? Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was a grassroots thing. Yeah. Like every county had its own like pride chapter. Yeah. Still does, actually. Yeah. I think they still give grants out for that shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're, they've become a little chintzier in recent years, but yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, so you've got Hal Rogers. Put a bookmark in him for just a second because we're going to come back to him. It's going to be very important. But you've got Hal Rogers. Um, but then let's go back to Oxycontin, Purdue, East Kentucky in the late 90s. So I mentioned earlier, we hinted at it, that there was this moral panic around crime. Yeah. Attached to Oxycontin. Yeah. Well, that was basically false. Yeah. Um, but a lot of journalists and uh, newspapers wrote about it. Um, they they amplified this idea that there was a crime wave. Um, I think I quoted one, you know, cover, you know, article from the Boston Herald that was like, Oxycontin fueling crime wave across country, you know? Yeah. Well, I, that's, it's not... So I interviewed this guy. He was a former um, criminal justice professor at Eastern Kentucky University, Kenneth Tunnell. And he put out this, these articles in 2005 and 2006 that had looked at this era and had looked at crime statistics from this era and was like, there was no rise in crime rates. And the thing is about crime rates is you always got to take them with a grain of salt because they're all re- reported by cops. Wait, do you remember... Uh you know, the Welcome to Murder City propaganda the NYPD put out in the 70s of, like, New York City. Yeah. And it turned out there was no <laughs> noticeable rise in crime yeah. in that era or anything like that. But it was, like, part of, like, politi- political jockeying on the part of, like, police departments and so forth. I mean, it's yeah. you could draw a through line to here for that kind of stuff. It's happening right now. And a lot of it has to do with getting federal money. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's happening right now. Like, you see all these headlines and stuff about, like, the post-pandemic murder rise in homicides you know and stuff yeah. like that it's all moral panic yeah. um but like yeah the thing about crime rates is you got to kind of take them with a grain of salt because they're reported by cops but they weren't even fudging their own numbers you would think that if they were really trying if they were dedicated to sell to, this yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah like they would be reporting that violent crime and property crime like the two crimes most related to drug activity or whatever would be rising but they weren't but they're that lazy they won't even cook their own books <laughs> right, exactly and why would they because there's no repercussions you know what i exactly. mean like they can just say whatever and oh okay. <laughs> so so um so like i said earlier you've got police chiefs making these sensationalist claims about um you know people breaking in the houses and stuff or stealing copper, uh, you know, and selling drugs. On the face of it, it makes no sense. Because what do you do when you take opioids? 
You don't want to go fucking do crimes. No. You want to just fucking watch TV and go to sleep. Yeah, I want to get fucking stoned <laughs> and go uh, strip copper, which is a hard <laughs> fucking thing to do. Yeah, especially... Busting out drywall and then all that, and getting in there and then like, you know, like not getting yourself killed while doing that or exactly. anything. It's, like, it's not easy. And imagine doing that like... Fucking it blistered out of your head. Yeah, completely strung out. Like it's it's completely. It's yeah. it's like. Do you remember when, um, like uh, a few years ago, when like bath salts was in vogue for yeah. like half a second, and everybody said bath salts turns you into these like cannibalistic like humanoids, and like people like eat people when they're on bath yeah. salts and stuff like, like that. Yeah, it's it's kind of like that. It's kind of like they have to like say. Or even like the J.D. Vance, he'll be an elegy scene where his mom's like taking the opioids and then she gets like, starts skating through there. And it's like, <laughs> that's not, a, she would just be kind of slumped over in the locker room <laughs> drooling on herself if she was real. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and the thing I want to point out here, and this is, the, this is the thing that I kind of ran up against a lot while researching this from my own personal life and from reading all these mainstream accounts. Yeah. If people want to do drugs, they can do drugs. Yeah. People take drugs. It's a immutable fact of human existence going back millennia. We've been trying to find a way to get intoxicated <laughs> for as long as we've been a species. Exactly. Yeah. And so the idea of completely eradicating a community or a society of drugs is never going to happen. But also hilarious that for a class of people, cops, I'm saying, that pride themselves on being these tough on crime, whatever, and and they know they have this know how because they have to deal with these people on drugs every single day. Their myths don't even make sense. Right. The first time I ever heard the myth about you can take LSD once and like trip ten years later because it like stays in your spinal fluid or something <laughs> was from a dare was from a fucking dare cop in elementary right. school. You're right. You know what I mean? Yep. It's like none of that stuff squares with the reality of getting high. You know? Right. It's all fanciful nonsense. Right. Yeah, and so that's another thing um, that needs to be stressed, which is that one thing that you really can't deny that was happening, maybe crime rates weren't going up, but use was. I right. mean, there is a reason that there was a moral panic. Right. Uh, th there was increased usage. There was increased overdoses. I mean, this was, at the end of the day, this was a public health crisis. And right. when I say that, I don't mean it in the liberal sense or the conservative sense. I don't mean it like, oh, you know, people were on these drugs and maybe they shouldn't have been criminalized, but they also shouldn't be using it. I'm saying that if people want to use drugs, they should be able to and they should be able to do it safely um, and however they want. And if they want to get off of them, they should get help. I mean, they should have access to help, or you know what I'm saying. Like, people should be able to do what access, the fuck they want to do. Say. <laughs> Interesting term. <clears throat> no, you're right. It's uh, yeah. It's 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 uh, it doesn't need. I I I'll give you an example. I ran into this when we were we were doing like the needle exchange program. I was trying to get that off the ground, and it turns out Letcher County's health board includes. Um, <laughs> tell you how much they dehumanize uh, drug users in eastern Kentucky the Letcher County Health Board has a veterinarian on the board <laughs> god damn it uh, but like the, like we were si I remember sitting in this meeting and I remember Kitty Gish was one of the handful of people that was like kind of agreed with me 
one or two others, but a lot of other people were just like said, well, we're just going to like promote drug use if we do this. We're just going to give them easy access. And it's like that that is the point here. And I remember right. turning to the director of the health department and him saying that we had like like for the longest time like Letcher County had like just a handful like maybe five or six cases of HIV infection. That year they had 22 new cases. And he said after that that um that there are that there was like I think he said six new cases of hepatitis C diagnosed every day in Letcher County at that point. I remember that. that yeah. year. And I was like how do you all see this? Okay? Mhm. And not like treat this as like a public this is like about curbing infection rates right at this point this is not about the moral dimensions of drug use or whatever you think about that you know what right. i mean and they could not they could not see that they could not like and and a lot of that has to do with what you're dealing with here is because they're dealing with 15 years of like propaganda about the criminalization and how these people are subhuman and like you know what i mean we got to stop these monsters it's almost their version their war on terror i think that's a good parallel that you i i i talked with people who we know in this community to be like quote-unquote liberals who just found medication assisted treatment suboxone and other things just completely ridiculous just like they 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 saw they really do think that it is wrong for people to be inebriated or intoxicated in some way. And all of them are drunks. <laughs> a lot of them are drunks, by the way. I've seen a lot of these people you say drunk off their ass, you know. Well, that is a that is I've another... literally been at dinners with these people <laughs> where they're slurring their words and like being inappropriate with like young Robinson scholars and right. shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because is... they're so fucking drunk. Well, that's the thing about drug use and and that I've tried to hammer in this piece is that it is you have to think about it dialectically. It has it is a social relation. Yeah. There is, one, there is one part of drug use, the part where you take the substance and there's a chemical modification inside your body. But then there's the other part of it, which ties you into society in some way. Yeah. And so otherwise, how else do you explain that alcohol is is considered fine? Like yeah. as you were it's just like saying. social drug use versus antisocial drug exactly. use. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. When I yeah, I've seen alcohol ruins multiple people's lives. Oh, <laughs> I've seen yeah. That's like no doubt about it. Um, so, <clears throat> so yeah, so like I said, you've got, this is a public health crisis, but it wasn't treated like that. Right. Um, and so you've got people making some absolutely ridiculous claims, um, sensationalistic claims. Um, you know, and these are good journalists. These are people I know that we know yeah, that yeah, were writing yeah. these things. Yeah. The Lexington Herald leader wrote a series in 2002 called prescription for pain like yeah. a 12 part series about this yeah. that hal rogers wrote i read hal rogers read this and that's when he decided he wanted to do something about the opioid crisis yeah it's like these like well-meaning liberals are unwittingly like getting federal money funneled into bullshit causes or, or exactly about drugs exactly like they aided and abetted this they absolutely did <laughs> yeah. So this enters in the next phase of this story. So that when Hal Rogers finally links up with this growing quote-unquote crisis, when he decides he wants to finally do something about opioids, 
it comes at the most insane moment. And I didn't put this in the piece because I just didn't know how to actually pull it off uh, without sounding... Uh, well, you got 7,000 words already. You don't want to take people down even further avenues of whatever. But the moment this occurs, that Hal Rogers decides... I'm going to finally do something about opioids in eastern Kentucky after reading this thing in the Lexington Herald-Leader about opioids. It occurs in 2003. And what happens in 2003? Hal Rogers gets appointed to head the House Appropriations Subcommittee on Homeland Security. He gets to personally oversee the largest restructuring of the federal government in over 50 years. He gets to oversee the creation of the agency... prosecuting the drug war i mean i'm sorry the war on terror war on terror yeah and so as like one of the very first things he does is he sends all these homeland security grants to police departments around the the region i mean there's multiple there's multiple headlines about it like hazard got millions of dollars in homeland security grants uh to update their own sort of um, communications infrastructure yeah. and other things. So did the Pikeville Police Department. Um, you have a, a a direct link between the war on terror and the war on drugs. Yeah. Well, and so then what he does next after that is then he launches Operation Unite. Yeah. And so what makes Operation Unite different from earlier I mentioned the high-intensity drug trafficking area and the Kentucky State Police were also launching their own, um, you know, drug raids. They had done one in 2001 called Operation Oxyfest. Yeah. <laughs> That's a ridiculous name. But what makes... Oxyfest. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a goddamn thing, Malcolm. You know, remember that Aussie Fest? It does. Yeah, yeah Hillary... Chelsea Clinton was there at Operation Oxyfest oh in Eastern Kentucky. <laughs> so they... Let me ask you a question. So Oxyfest was like a roundup. It was a massive drug roundup, yeah. It sounds like a fucking music festival dedicated to like Oxycontin. <sighs> well, it was in some ways, but <laughs> <clears throat> there was a spectacle. Mm-hmm. What differentiates Unite from Operation Oxyfest, the high intensity drug trafficking area, Kentucky State Police's efforts to whatever is the community component, the social component. Yeah. How Rogers tried to model Unite on Pride, on Kentucky Pride, that we just discussed a minute ago. And so what that meant was that there was a grassroots element to it. Yeah. And this was the unique thing about Unite. This is what made it unprecedented and innovative, was that it tried to wage a comprehensive social war against opioid use. Yeah. And so it tried to, yeah, basically turn everyday citizens into... Like, sort of like... <laughs> I mean, the word Nazis is overused, but like, you know, yeah. like, rat out your neighbors, like... Yeah. Yeah. And what's going on at the same, at the exact same time? Patriot Act. Yeah. People uh, encouraging, if you see something, say something. It is. It's like a wholesale encroachment on our privacy, like at the at the municipal level, too. Yeah. It's interesting. I'd never drawn those parallels before. Well, yeah. So, it basically, it's saying there are new public enemies. Yeah. Look, citizen, you may not be able to participate in the war against the Muslimic jihadists. Listen, yeah, you might not be able to go kill uh, any Taliban, but what you can do exactly. is, if you see your neighbor acting a little funny... They've got a meth Call this task... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, 
And so, uh, and and so that's another thing I, I need to point out that Unite and these other initiatives went after other drugs than just opioids. But the opioid epidemic in OxyContin was the underlying impetus for all of it. Yeah. In their own words, in Oxy- literally, Roger said he read the piece on uh, prescription for pain, the, the piece in the Lexington Herald Leader, and that's why he launched o- Operation Unite. Um, and this so- is so amazing because I can see all these pieces coming together in my mind. It's like th- this is the natural progression of all this. I'll save this. Keep going. Okay. Um, so, like I said, you've got, uh, yeah, keep those in the back of your mind. War on terror and the social components uh. to it and all this. Um, and so, <clears throat> UNITE has three prongs, right? It, UNITE stands for Unlawful Narcotics Investigations, Treatment, and Education. Mm. So, the first was the law enforcement prong, uh, which is pretty self-explanatory. Yeah. Even then, it was kind of innovative because it was, it had like... Three task forces. Dude, you should have seen, like, all the Unite snitches that were, like, in, like, you know, like, Whitesburg PD and other just, Yeah. It's so funny because it's these guys that had, like, the cop haircut and they all, like, grew ponytails <laughs> and beards. Because they had to go, like, you know, go undercover by yeah. drugs and stuff. And they yeah. looked fucking ridiculous. Like, <laughs> they looked like a, like a, somebody just put a ponytail on a cop. You know what I mean? Yeah, so there were snitches. There were undercover informants. Yeah. Then there were other people who would get busted, and then they would become informants. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so there was the law enforcement component. Uh, there was a three task force in the region, like the Big Sandy, the Cumberland, and the fucking North Fork. I think I think they modeled it after those. Yeah. Um, and these task force were comp- you know made up of various detectives from around the region. I think there was like forty or fifty of them. How Rogers called them like an elite unit. You know they were. <laughs> <laughs> they were elite. The best of the best. Cream of the crop. Yeah, and all these guys went around thinking they were the Navy SEALs of fucking like yeah. local cops. And what you had was uh, basically, for this to work, county governments have to fire in, file interlocal agreements. Yeah. So like a fucking detective from Letcher County can serve a search warrant in Perry County. Well, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that is exactly what happened. Because I, rem- I can remember when that happened. Like, Whitesburg cops couldn't even go make an arrest in Jenkins. Like, mm-hmm. once they got to that city line, like, city incorporated, their jurisdiction ended. Yeah. That was, that's a thing of the past now. Yeah, they, they do whatever the fuck they want. Yeah. Westbrook Cop <laughs> could drive to fucking Lexington and probably make an arrest, yeah. you know. <clears throat> and so, um, this one woman who I interviewed, it was a defense attorney in McKee in Jackson County, mm. Sharon Allen. Um, shout out. I think she's a fan of the show now. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, she actually challenged this. As, like, unconstitutional. Because, like, one of these, um, I think it was in Jackson County, they had not filed the correct agreement. They didn't file it in the correct place. So, technically, they didn't have jurisdiction to file to issue search warrants. But they were doing it anyways. And Unite was just completely uh, taken aback and, uh, you know, defensive and... um, you know, aggressive about the fact that anybody would even dare challenge their ability to do this. That's the thing. Multiple times I encountered them just getting absolutely like red, nude, and mad that yeah. anybody would challenge their authority to do anything. Yeah. I mean, I found a article in the Hazard Herald from like 2000. This is, uh, th- but that makes total sense. This is why this is the era that came into again to get back to that parallel because, like. 
it, like the 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 creation of ice. You know, ice is yep. much talked about. All these sort of like sort of police agencies that are questionably constitutional <laughs> sprung up during this era because this is like this is the war effort. You know exactly. What I mean? Exactly. Um, and like the war effort, all of these, like they all well to. Ty Bo and Sharon Allen, like they, she had, you know, filed this and they were completely uh, ignored. Yeah, I mean, sh- they they lash back in the press that she would even attempt to do this or whatever. But yeah, so like the war effort, though, there were, um, there was the sort of, uh, you know, law enforcement aspect of it, the punishment aspect of it. But like the war in Iraq, there was a humanitarian aspect of it. <laughs> And Unite was modeled exactly on that. Yeah. It was like, well, we're going to punish you. There will be debathification. Right. But if you, if you play along and go nicely, there is a humanitarian effort because we're out to help you. And that's where the treatment comes in. Yeah. They said that they were you know, offering treatment uh, solutions and, and things. But they weren't. I mean, be, even if they were, and I mean, even if they were, they hadn't funded the treatment side of unite adequately at all i think that at they started with that like t and the e that's it's yeah. telling that they're up the, the back yeah. end <laughs> exactly exactly yeah like at the beginning how rogers got like eight million dollars in federal funds for them and i think like 80 i think it was 70 percent when of of it went to the law enforcement aspect of yeah. it so it's like treatment didn't get any but even if they did the real the problem with the iraq war and the problem with this is that humanitarianism and War, violence, like they are contradictory aims. They butt ends. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) They're not going to work. Right, right. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's so stupid that we fail for all this. It. I'd be curious to know too, because during all this, you also have another war, the war on coal. Yeah. And how that ties in. I'd be curious to later on dig into that. I think that the The third prong of this. I think that the war on coal kind of found like fertile. Ground like the friends of Colton kind of found a fertile sort they're of like, soil. Yeah, they're bed. doing the war on drugs. They're doing the <laughs> war on terror. Yeah, let's just use the whole yeah, the whole framing for right. this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so, like I said, there was um, yeah. There's the law enforcement side. <clears throat> then there's the treatment side, which wasn't um, funded at all. Right. Uh, and in fact, as I pointed out in the article, Unite actually you know, rejected, you know, the most up-to-date science on treatment. In 2004, they were still saying that we, we're not looking at Suboxone. We're not looking at the MAT treatment, yeah. at medicated-assisted assisted treatment. Like, they rejected it, and I even quoted one, the Kentucky River Care, right here in fucking Whitesburg. Yeah. Well, at that time, I think they were in Jackson. They said the culture of this region wasn't ready for MAT for medic- medicated-assisted treatment. I mean, like, and they took their cues from Unite. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah. So, and and I know people, and this is, like, a delicate thing because I was really worried about writing this because I knew people were going to get pissed and say, well, Unite did eventually provide treatment that we wouldn't have normally had. And that's true, but it was, like... but <laughs> left a lot of bodies in the way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there was, like, two years between when Unite started... And when they actually started issuing vouchers for treatment, and when they they built that one in Ash Camp, that yeah. treatment facility in Ash Camp, and and uh, I can't remember where the second one they built. I think it was in Clay County. Yeah. <clears throat> um, 
But yeah, there's a lot of bodies in that fucking two-year time period. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, and so then there, so yeah, there was those two prongs. And then the third prong, though, and again, this gets back to what I was saying a second ago. This is what differentiates it from every other drug war effort at the time. It was the education community outreach component. So what Unite did was they encouraged every community to start their own anti-drug group. Yeah. And so, you know, there's Unite Pike, Unite Letcher, and all yeah. these other groups. <clears throat> um, in doing that, they also encouraged a lot of these groups to become court watchers. I think only one or two counties actually did it. Um, like Clay County was one of them. But what, but what they were doing, and the first time I saw a headline about this, I was like, this is interesting. The headline I saw was um, Citizens Attempt to Hold Unite Accountable. And I was like, well, good. I'm glad somebody was doing this. And then I started reading the fucking article, and it was like, no, they were actually going to the trials of every drug offender and in trying to intimidate the judge, jury, and prosecutor into demanding the most severe sentence available. So what they were trying to do was, like, make sure Unite wasn't being too pussy. Yes. That's exactly <laughs> what they tried to do. God damn, dude. I mean, they, they were vigilantes. I've, and I've heard, I've heard of people, like, even people say this of their own family members, <clears throat> like, hoping something, like, earth-shattering happened to them. That's the only way they're going to learn. It's the only way they're going to get off this <laughs> stuff. You know what I mean? As if, like, somehow, like, the using of drugs was somehow much worse than anything that could happen to them. Yeah. Itself. For some moral reason, for some whatever. Well, I mean, the the our approach to addiction in this country is just, it's so bad. Yeah. I mean, it's so antiquated. It's so, I mean, no offense to people in 12-step programs. I don't really have anything against it per se. But that being the main way we Well, I mean, I understand that like AA and 12-step program works for a lot of people. But it's telling that our best option is something that has like a spiritual sort of yeah. quasi-religious component to it. Exactly. Instead of like <laughs> something a little more, I mean, I hate to sound like a liberal when I say this, but like firmer science-based sort of, you yeah. know what I mean? Whatever. Well, and it's also just dangerous. I mean, if you relapse, a lot of people that overdose usually do it in relapse. I mean... I don't know. I, the whole idea of complete abstinence, I don't know if it's... But I don't know. Some people are powerless to substances. I myself think that I am sometimes. So yeah, well, I mean... I don't know. It's yeah. I go back and forth. These are not things that I have come to any sense of consensus on or conclusion about. I had a lot of trouble with this aspect of this piece because ag- how you actually treat addiction is a, is a topic of... It's still a very fluid concept. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. yeah. And I think, though... The point that I'm driving at here is um, these are humans. We've built so many paradigms and institutions in this country to treat them like they're not. Right. And Unite was innovative in that it tried to mobilize all of the social forces available to treat them like they weren't. Right. And it tried to treat them like, yeah, these, like, again, using the war on terror analogy, it tried to treat them like they were public enemies. Right. And it did so at a moment of critical like a critical conjuncture of political economic history here when you've got massive changes in the gender economy occurring national you know that should have seen some sort of accompanying change in the political structure here but didn't and so you have to ask like why well it's because people were encouraged to not channel their rage and anger 
over their conditions into some sort of solidaristic political activity or action, but instead to go after their neighbors who they thought were taking drugs. Right. And that's, that's a, that is a formula for disorganizing the working class. Yeah. And I think that that is when you talk about like, um, you know, well, you know, what, what is going on in these communities that, as you were mentioning earlier, there's entrenched poverty and, you know, there's no solidarity in the working class and they can't mount any kind of like challenge to capital. And it's like, well, we're just coming out of a 20 year period where a lot of people were acculturated to see their neighbors as less than a a human and to view them with suspicion and to not, I mean, we've even got friends that do this and I was even doing it probably up until like five or six years ago, probably too. I mean, it's just all of us are so inundated in that idea. Yeah. So I don't know. So that's, you know, that was the Unite uh, sort of community um, and, and, you know, they held massive rallies. Pastors would go and they'd work the mobs up into anti-drug frenzies. People would make statements like, we gotta kill the drug dealers, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, this was... This was a ma- this was a social uh, revolution in some ways, or it was in upheaval some ways, anyways. Yeah, I remember there was sort of a um, I don't know what you would call it, but I can re- I can recall police that worked in you know up at City Hall around the same time when like somebody would overdose, they'd have to send the corner over there, and like these cops would say, "That's another a- another ad," and you say, "What's an ad?" An ADD, another dead doper. Yeah. So I was just treated as like this the most disposable people. Like there was like a, I don't know, like a language or like slang terms for like what they, you know what I mean? There's a whole culture that sprung up around it about what they, in, in terms of the dehumanization of drug use at that time. It is, it's weird to think about now. And it's, it's, you could you can draw a straight line between how all this came together and how now every, Podunk Police Agency in Eastern Kentucky, Southwest Virginia, West Virginia, wherever, now has like, you know, 47 cops and uh, 247 uh, AK-47s and like 60,000 rounds of ammunition in their fucking trunks. It's like we said, it's the New Deal for cops. Yeah. Well, and you know, and the thing that I kind of left out and haven't mentioned so far, and, and that links up the community aspect of this was a law enforcement aspect was the way that they did drug roundups the roundups were incredibly inhumane Um, they would round up 40 to 50 people take them to a large public space like a public high school gym or a parking lot where everybody in the community could see them and put them on full display like I interviewed this woman who told me this insane story about how her group in Harlan County They had started a group because they wanted a women's rehab facility there. They got a call one morning from Unite saying, come out, we're going to make a big announcement. They were excited. They were like, well, this is, we're finally going to get our rehab facility. And they get down there. It's the local, it's at the old high school gym there in Harlan. And it's a fucking drug roundup. There's like 50 or 60 people just fucking chained to the floor, basically. And they're like, you know, we don't want to be here. We don't want any part of this. If If someone's addicted, we want them to be able to come to us and not feel like we're going to turn them over to the police or something what i'm getting at here is it created an atmosphere a larger atmosphere that made recovery however you want to define that virtually impossible yeah 
And so then you have to ask, well, what what is uh? Unless you're rich. Unless you're rich. Noted, I know plenty of rich kids that got hooked on drugs. Yeah. And you know what? What would happen to them? They would go, you know, to Florida or Tennessee or any like the big. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like. Yep. It was a class war. You know, this, tennis rehab facility. This was class war, absolutely. Uh, uh. Um, and so then, yeah, so then, so what you do, what you see next is the aftermath, the after effects, because we probably need to start wrapping this up. Um, <clears throat> but uh, so, you know, one inevitable question I feel like I came back to over and over while writing this was like, would things be quote-unquote as bad as they are now and by that i mean you see these headlines just yesterday like overdoses are higher than they've ever been in 2020 you know like Mm. would things be as bad now if we just hadn't criminalized this early on and had actually treated it like what it was which is a public health crisis yeah um and so you look at stuff you I, i don't know there's no way to actually answer that scientifically probably but i think that you can make a pretty good case that they did create the conditions for um, further, uh, you know, uh, discord in communities and violence and other things. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to think about because the same liberals that would have, or that I've even heard, Trump politicized this mask thing early, and that's why we're in such a big mess, were the same type of liberals that would have been like yeah. calling people zombies <laughs> exactly. 10 years ago. Exactly. You know what I mean? yep. So if you're a liberal out there and you're sitting there and you're you know you hate Trump because of everything he's done to like destroy this country, consider the fact that you did something. Maybe if you're from communities like these, it's more destructive than, or is equally as destructive. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, you know, and and then you also look at the. I think that where I was also coming at this from is that um, the carceral effects of this. You have people in 2005 and 2006, public defenders, saying, we're creating so many caseloads, so many people are going through the criminal justice system, we can't keep up. And they were asking for more money from, you know, Attorney General, the U.S. Attorney General Office in Eastern Kentucky. And one guy even interviewed Ernie Lewis, who used to head the Department of Public Advocacy. Who is the USAG in this time? Um... It was this guy named Joseph Famolaro. He died in 2002. His name was like Van Heusen or something like that. Huh. I can't remember his first name. He had like a Dutch name or something like that. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, he went, Ernie did, Lewis, he went to you know, see the USAG for Eastern Kentucky at this time to ask for more money for the public defender program. And he said he basically got laughed out of the room. They did give more money to prosecutors. They hired special prosecutors to get these drug cases moving. Um, but what they started doing is they started putting so many people in jail, in local jails, um, that they started having to build new ones entirely. And so, and this is one of the other myths that I came at this, you know, I came at this thing with this in mind, but was very astonished to see this. Like, every time you see a headline about when they sue Purdue Pharma, like West Virginia sues Purdue Pharma, Kentucky sues Purdue Pharma. It's just like for the costs associated with the opioid epidemic. Well, if you read between the lines, 
on a lot of those lawsuits, the costs they're referring to... Law enforcement. Yes, they're law enforcement... In, like basically, they just want the cops reimbursed. They want the cops reimbursed, and a lot of them had to build new jails and stuff. Yeah. Like, for example, Pike County. They yeah. sued Purdue... Not for, families that lost people. No, like no, 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 no. Pike County sued Purdue for, for $7 million in 2007. And it was because in 2005, they had spent $5 million on expanding their jail, basically. to hold, As they said, the jailer said, to hold people due to the opioid epidemic. And it's like, you did this. You, you did didn't this. have to put them there. That's like you know? Eric Andre meme with the gun. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it's exactly right. And so yeah. that's what I'm talking about like with the big pharma thing. It's like, okay... They may have flooded these communities with pills, but choosing to criminalize them was a choice. Yeah, yeah, it did yeah. not have to be yeah. that way. Why would Purdue Pharma do this? Exactly. <laughs> and again, I'm not absolving them. They deserve to be hanged, to be the worst, uh, parody, yeah. whatever. But but these law enforcement agencies... Had a choice people, to make about how they handled it, and yeah. they did the exact wrong thing. They treated it like the war on terror, basically. Yeah, yeah. And so now a lot of these counties, and I counted... I counted at least half a dozen new jails in Eastern Kentucky since 2001. I mean, like, at least six <laughs> counties in Eastern Kentucky since this began have had to build new jails. And that, well, I use that, have had to. I mean, I use that with scare quotes because in their minds it's a political prerogative. Yeah. But it's also an infrastructural one, too. Yeah. It's like we've pointed out before with that statistic from Jack Norton and Judith Shep's piece that if you're if you're looking at this from their perspective it's like well there might not always be people around civilians around for civil infrastructure but there will always be prisoners and the rate that this is going up at in 100 years every person in Kentucky will be behind bars so we can build more jails no. and we can get money to build more we, jails when we yeah it's interesting to think back cuz when we were doing the prison fight a few years ago we really, I guess, had no idea what we were up against from a rhetorical standpoint. Right. Like, we won that because we got lucky. Despite any hagiography you might come across about that. Right. Including one featuring my face. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but the truth was, is it, it like, all things being equal, we were up against decades, really. I mean, almost two decades of just constantly being... Like I remember going around, people be like, "Well, why? I don't understand why you you got all these dopers out here running around." And like, they couldn't understand why I thought that was just not anything that we need to be concerned about. You right. know what I mean? <clears throat> From a a crime perspective, right. you know what I mean? Right, right. Uh, yeah, that's it. Was it's it's insane to well, think about? Yeah, it's insane to think that now it is all it's woven into. It's not just some sort of like culture war thing or just something that people. Shout out for uh, scare tactics or political points. It's woven into the political economy of how counties are administered, at least in eastern Kentucky. I mean, I did not study southwest Virginia, West Virginia, Rust Belt, Ohio, or any of these other places. But I would be willing to bet that if you looked, if you took a fine comb to a lot of these places, you would find similar, pretty threads, similar yeah. contours. Yeah. Um so, I don't know. Um, to make a long story short, TR, TLDR, yes, Purdue flooded the streets with pills. 
but cops criminalized them and the users, the people that use them. They treated it like a criminal crisis when it was in fact a public health crisis. And um, yeah, uh, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Well, just rewriting history over here at the Trillbillies HQ. Yeah. <laughs> Using card ho- cold hard facts. This is the Coors Light cold hard facts, folks. That's right. Cold hard facts. Brought to you by the Payflip Coors Bottling Company. Sponsors of the show and opponents of mass incarceration. <laughs> yes, champ- champions of closing the racial wealth gap. <laughs> Oh, fuck. Um, All right. Well, so anyways, go read the piece if this hasn't been enough for you in an hour and a half. You can find find it at The Baffler. Um, You can use it to win arguments against people who rely on the simplistic narrative of... uh, Well, this is what it's really good for. I mean, from my perspective, is dunking on liberals with... (laughs) Uh, well, it's it's us versus the Sacklers. Well, yeah, but... <laughs> well, where I'm going with this is that we just came out of a year when the biggest rallying cry was defund the police. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, well, what? how did the police operate in rural areas as well? And what I have found and what I know to be true now is that defund the police should apply universally i mean obviously that's probably an obvious thing to anybody but it's good to have some uh evidence for it some empirical data but um but but yeah i think that uh you know if you're just looking at it from that perspective um yeah i don't know defund the police both in small town america and in chicago yeah (laughs) i don't know um that's really all that needs to be said about it. Yeah. I think, I think yeah. that, uh, but if that's your rallying cry, then you got to interrogate some of these things that, I mean. Well, that's that's the thing. I mean, because a lot, I, I that's kind of where I was going with this. Yeah, that I think a lot of those people would um, who say defund the police would probably also obfuscate the role of the police in creating this quote-unquote crisis. Yeah. They were heavily complicit. Um, in every step of the way. And so, fuck the police. Um, we should defund them. They are bad. They make things worse. Uh, and every time you see one of those headlines about overdoses going up, just say, okay, the Sacklers, yes, they contributed, they created the underlying conditions for it, but the police threw gas on the fire and in some cases created new fires yeah. and <laughs> threw all of us into the fire. What was that? <laughs> Little fires everywhere. Yes. That book. That might be a good title for this. Um so uh so yeah, so go read the piece. It's at the Baffler, thebaffler.com. Should be on the front page. Go support the Baffler and um, support us while you're in the giving mood. Yeah, if you're in the giving mood, go to the Patreon, patreon.com slash Trillbilly Workers Party. Um, this is what we're spending, this is what we're doing with all the that hard-earned... Hard-hitting patron- journalism. That's right. We're, we are doing journalism, because 
I sit around and I say, you know, I've got this money from this show. I do twice a week. What am I going to do with it? And turns out what I'm going to do with it is I'm going to sit in the in the library and look at microfilm until I have back and neck problems and, oste- and arthritis in my wrists. So, <laughs> well, that's from jacking off to the microfilm. But, but you yeah. know. No. <laughs> um, but anyways, uh, please continue to go support us at Patreon so that we can continue to do stuff like this. I don't know who we'll take down next. I would really like to do... I, I, well, i tell you this. I was thinking about this coming in today. But did you see this thing going around of um, the judge in Mississippi, the guy that got thrown in jail? Like, standard protocol is to, like, take your cell phone from you. Did you see this? Uh-uh. I don't think so. Well, they didn't take this guy's cell phone from him for whatever reason. And he didn't know that, like, I guess... They they thought well he had his cell phone well they must it must be all right to have your cell phone in jail so he called his wife from his cell uh-huh. and uh, like when the cops were going around I guess like checking doing cell checks or whatever he asked if they had like a phone charger he could use and they were like phone charger you can use so yeah my phone died whoa and then they booked him and. The and the judge in that jurisdiction gave him twelve extra years. He was going in on like a drug fuck? crime that was going to keep him there like nine. I don't know. It was like a short period of time. I don't know what it was. Jesus Christ! Oh, uh, it's th- like their own mistakes. Yeah, constantly. Oh my God, man! And it went to the Mississippi Supreme Court, and it was upheld there. That's the, dude, this is the crazy thing about this, because you look at crime rates, again, go back and look at the crime rates from the early 90s and then the, or the late 90s and then our early 2000s. It's like, before they actually started going after Oxycontin opioids, um, militantly, the crime rates were about the same as they had been in the early 90s. But yeah. then they actually start going after them, and then the crime rates go up. It, felony indictments in Letcher County alone tripled between like 2001 and 2004. And it's like, yeah, because cops create crime. Create crisis to <laughs> create, generate money. Exactly. All right. <laughs> it's not fucking rocket science. Yeah. These doesn't, this does not mean there's like a rise in these social ills. The exactly. same ills that are in communities have always been and will probably always persist. Exactly. You know what I mean? And usually times ills is not even the right word for them. But. I, I was thinking about that. I saw that, and it reminded me of the guys getting, like, the book thrown at them for, like, beating the hell out of that guy that watched Fire Down Below. <laughs> and it's like, I know we have a, like, you know, that's tee-hee-ha-ha with that, but I think it would be fun to start doing more stuff where we, like, look at, like, just draconian punishments that are held down and kind of shine a light on those things. Because there's probably people rotting away Dude. here. For really dumb reasons. Dude, oh yeah, that was... Like, like even dumber than, like, drug use or anything like that. Right, because that, that was extraordinarily dumb. Yeah. That that example. And these That's, guys lost their whole lives. Right. Because they beat up a guy. But in this piece, I found a guy who got five years for selling two Percocet pills. Yeah. Two perks. Five fucking years of your yeah. life. Just yeah. gone. Just gone. Yep. I mean, and these are the people that they're rounding up kingpins. Yeah. yeah, you're fucking, you're not doing shit. Yeah, you're not doing a fucking thing. Ugh, God, I hate cops, man. Anyways, it's all about, it's all perspectives, really. I yeah. guess if you, if you don't, if you don't come into contact with police, if you're not harassed by them on a daily basis, I can see how you could look at the situation and be like, yep, yeah, this is all Sackler. 
But if you are looking at this from another angle, someone who is daily harassed by these fucking terrorists... And listen, make no mistake about it. This is not, you know, this is not, uh, you know, just segregated to black communities or brown communities or anything else. You know what I mean? It's like you say in this thing. It's like that whole refrain about... The, what, what was it that you said, like the, the liberal tweet that you see going around from yeah, time to time? Yeah, it's the what they're, they're like... Um, people didn't cra- care about right. treatment for drug until white people started. Exactly. Yeah, right. that's like, mm, that's not true. Yeah, it's not true. This <laughs> yeah. was a class war. Yeah, This yeah. was a class war from totally. the very beginning. Yeah. Um, so that's another point you can uh, score uh, with this piece, if you would like. Yeah. Uh, to show people, no, this this actually was a class war, right. um, and uh, we wage it every day. They wake up every day and wage class war. What do you do? What do we do? We what do we do? We should do it. We get, hey, yeah. they like to do their wars. We should take up a war of our own. That's right. That's right. Um, so, anyways, uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Go read the piece once again at the Baffler. We'll see you over at the Patreon on Sunday. Bye bye.